lot of my early commissions were from people who knew who knew of me and then after some of them had seen some of my early projects it just started grew from there to where um uh word of mouth spread and and then a couple national brands uh asked me to partake in, in potentially doing a store for them and that led to another thing and led to another thing and you know what i realized is that um I like working with people who understand themselves, like who they are as a business. And Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host, and having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Scott Magic, and Scott has magic architecture in Austin, Texas, and I love his magic, to tell you the truth. The way he puts colors together, his form, um, and it was something that I spotted, and I was like talking with another friend of mine who said, hey, yeah, he does beautiful work, and so I started digging around on his work, and I approached Scott and said, Scott, I'd love to tell some of your story on Talk Design. So, Scott, Welcome to Talk Design. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. No worries, buddy. Um, let's kick off with how did you end up with a name that was magic? Where did that come <laughs> from? Uh, you, the, the story from the old country uh, is that we were uh, uh, Czech immigrants and the, the name was actually Majesh. Uh, and had an H at the end of it. Um, and when they immigrated, uh, they, they dropped the H at, at Elvis Island. Ah, cool. Actually, I, I went out with a, a girl once whose name was um, Smith. And her parents, I'll never forget this, her parents, their real name was Schmid or Schmidt. But that was German. And they changed it to Smith. Because um, not that they were in the war, in the war, but because there was so much backlash, and they were New Zealanders against Germans during the war, that their previous generation changed it to Smith. So it's interesting how names get there, isn't it? And then it just sticks. Yeah. 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 Well, it's a it's a magic name. It's a cool name. I've got to tell you a little name story though, based on on that. So. My name's Ramsey and it's R-A-M-S-A-Y. And I haven't told anybody this before on the podcast. Um, so my father's name was Rams Bottom. And for thank God, he had the foresight <laughs> to change it. <laughs> like I used to, years ago, I lived in England up, in, up near Manchester and just um, to the north uh, west of manchester there's a town called ramsbottom and when you go to that town it's a beautiful little town in a valley like really mm -hmm. beautiful has a train line that goes through it the graveyard there's a graveyard there that's right in town and about i reckon probably 25 percent of the people in there are ramsbottoms and of course it was their town and the other 25 percent were littons and 
with them being that my other side of my family was Littons. The Littons and the Ramsbury's Bottoms married and came out to New Zealand many years ago. But yeah, thank God for my wow. father's foresight. He changed his name when he was, um, before he was actually allowed to by deed poll, he changed it to Ramsey. And then the, the weirdest thing is, is I've got a sister who's got nine children and I've got a brother who's got no children and I've got two girls. So unless one of them carries the name on, it's only going to last a generation. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm the only magic from my uh, generation. So of course my, you are. <laughs> my siblings decided not to have kids. So uh, yeah. I'm the only one keeping the name alive. But you've got two boys. Yes. So that will probably perpetuate the name. Maybe. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. It's, a, it's such a fascinating thing, eh, where it comes from. And I love that, you know, like it, it would have been that uh, people so mispronounced it, I imagine, as well. Um, it, it, it's, it's fun until, you know, you, you tell someone that your dad's name is Magic Mike, uh, like the stripper. But that, that, is his, that is his birth name. So it, it's kind of, it's a good family zinger every once in a while. <laughs> I love it. When, when my first daughter, who's 18, um, when she was born, uh, we named her Paris after the city of Paris. And uh, at the time, uh, Paris Hilton was, you know, pretty big on the scene. And so people would say to me, you know, like friends and stuff would say, so why Paris? Like, you know. I'd go, yeah, I named her after Paris Hilton. And uh, that would, they'd sort of go stand back at that point. And then I'd say, actually, no, that's not true. I named her after Michael Jackson's daughter. She's Paris as well. And they go, oh, oh like this. And I said, then I'd go, you know, none of that's true. There's a hooker that's in Kunda Park, which is a little suburb close to us. And her name's Paris. That's who I named her after. Like this. And then people would just be like, what the? And then we'd say we named her after the city because we loved the city so much. <laughs> but yeah, it was like this little rollout of like, why did you do something? But it was yeah, like like you can play with magic. I played yeah. with her name for many years. But you know, oh, nowadays, that's... nowadays it's um it's not so unique to be called Paris, but it's it's that yeah, there isn't any icon that sort of stands out at the moment named Paris that's doing something wrong. Paris Goebbels maybe is the the only one she's a choreographer very famous new zealand girl who's a choreographer does all these amazing dance um, things for different people nice. anyway that was a little off the track <laughs> um <laughs> so because your magic why did you call it magic architecture how come it didn't end up you know like as some other name because you like to play with this i'm thinking uh uh yeah uh there was no pun or joke intended uh you know really it, it was too good not to use really um and it, it's just simple because throughout my life most of my friends just called me magic like yeah right hey, magic let's go get a beer or yeah. you know i'll take magic on my team or yeah uh in college uh, and so just it's just simple uh and um you know, in a way, too, it's kind of like a honor to my family and, and uh, those who kind of came before me. That's nice. Have you got any um, architects in your family or are you it? 
No, it's that's a good question. Uh, I came from two scientists who, oh, wow. uh, a, a physicist and a chemist, and uh, they were very type A. I mean, you couldn't get more anal. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I physics, know. Uh, it, yeah. Uh, I remember asking my dad to do like physics questions, and he just spit out the answer on a post-it note, and I be lost no uh, idea why it means this but this is what it means he, he is very smart incredibly smart but a terrible teacher uh yeah. and but you know they, they did let me get creative in high school and uh, i played in bands and uh got got involved in music and what um, what what instrument do you play i played guitar and bass in various <laughs> bands uh but you know we we would um uh, save our allowance and go buy records every weekend and you know back when that was a thing and uh we had crazy record collections and just listened to crazy stuff and those were the guys we got fake ids to go into go see concerts uh yeah that was kind of our thing so how cool i've um i've got a little thing of uh when people are musos getting them to play on the on the podcast so Jeff um, Dungan uh, from Alabama started it. I spotted a guitar in his in his office, and I said, "Do you play that?" He said, "Yeah, sure, I do." And he picked it up and played it. And um, oh, cool. I did another one with a guy called Peter Tui, and Peter um, he played I think about three times on the podcast. <laughs> he played like three different things, um, <laughs> and we great. we talked about the line between architecture and music, you know, and, and what how you how he shapes his thinking with you know one passion to another passion yeah yeah which is kind of you cool. know i mean i'll say this um i did play bass more than i played guitar and so you, you kind of have to keep that rhythm going yeah. right and sort of uh there's different uh sort of structure to it yeah um and you know, there, there are times when you that kind of thinking comes back you're know, like oh yeah that 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 and that um but you know what i what my takeaway was it from from music was that you know people get to enjoy that you know they, they make this thing and it's out there and then it's people respond to it and there's a sort of self-expression that's there that's kind of pure in a way um and it just they're allowed to be what they want to be and it's it's kind of always cool to kind of find that in a musician and let I, them hear like, express their voice a hundred percent a hundred percent and until recently i was listening to a podcast with um debbie millman um on design matters and it was with david byrne and until that time i kind of thought that when a musician performed you know they were they were a hundred percent on and he said, no, there is the time, David Byrne says this, there is the time when you're thinking about, oh, damn, did I put the washing out or do I need to get milk on the way home? Um, <laughs> but he says you're on stage belting it out. Um, but pretty much it's an on switch and it's like design. It's an on switch. Right. And mm -hmm. so you, you go into a another zone to create and... Um, you know, you probably use a lot more alpha alpha thinking as opposed to beta thinking and your brain waves and that on switch comes on and time stands still and you get to 
I suppose, get closer to who you, the, the rhythm of who you really are. And architecture is full of rhythm anyway. It is, uh, you know, uh, I didn't want to be an architect. Uh, mm. I didn't know I wanted to do this. Uh, um, my, my parents had really steered me away from art, uh, you know, and going to college. They're like, go get a, go get a finance degree, you know, yeah. go, go that way, go make money. Yeah. Uh, go manage someone else's money. And, um, <clears throat> I just remember my freshman year being bored out of my mind and, uh, and uh, being in the business school and, and watching uh, Animal House, you know, <laughs> during our class, I, I mean, I, I realized I paid about $1,000 to watch that, you know, it was like, I was about to that's say a waste that. of money. That's a waste of money. <laughs> you um, could have watched it for five bucks at the theater, but no, you spent a lecture. <laughs> right. Um, uh, but there, there was this class I, I took randomly and my mom was like, yeah, yeah, just, you know, flirt with it, you know, just take a course in it. And it was, uh, it was a survey course, uh, uh, you know, called introduction to architecture. One of those big, uh, lecture halls. But yeah. Right. The guy who was teaching it, uh, was this, uh, uh, Fred Rogers like man. Uh, the salt of the earth, I, I, I would call him. Um, his name was Bill Kleinsasser, and he uh, had taught at the University of Oregon for many, many years, but he was one of uh, five architects who uh, left Lou Kahn's office right. in, the, in the 70s, uh, either from starving, from not getting paid, <laughs> or... Um, uh, their friend Donald and Lyndon uh, had invited them to teach. <clears throat> and that was how they could passed. get paid. Yeah. And so uh, this guy, um, it was it was like listening to poems every day for for class and hearing these beautiful stories uh, and ideas about design and philosophy and really just uh, made me think about being a better human. And uh, was was very challenging. He's a very serious guy, but um, he grabbed me one day after class and said, "You need to do this." Yeah, wow. Uh, and just kind of pulled me out and and said, "You need to go into architecture. Do this." And that guy changed my life. Wow, for the better. Yeah, yeah. That's um, uh, that's an awesome story. <laughs> Um, because it, 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 yeah, it was a direction change. It was like a, a right turn and, um, the rest is history. So then you did that. You, you took his advice. I did. Um, and, and he was a great mentor, uh, and, and, uh, stuck with it, uh, you know, made it through and, and enjoyed the challenges through school and, um, I remember uh, one of my last presentations, one, one of the other con uh, uh, professors uh, who still practices in Oregon, great architect named Gary Moy. Uh, Gary Moy? He, uh, uh, he trained a lot of great architects up, up in the Northwest, many who are my peers and doing really well. Um, Gary was like, you know, Scott, what are you doing this summer? And I'm like, yeah, you know, uh, I'm looking for a job and 
we ended up talking and, and the, the joke was I could make more money being the bicycle mechanic that I was currently than going to work in the profession. And uh, it was a hard, it was a hard pivot. Like, what do you do? What do you do? Um, it's, it's, it was a, a, you say to, you say to Gary, can I do nights? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you, know, you know, the thing about architects and money is they're terrible with it. Um, yeah. And, and there's also this kind of mentality of people graduating and, and then having to do professional internships and on, on no money. I mean, I know plenty of friends who moved to New York and lived off their families. And yeah. That just didn't seem like a good existence. Uh, so I just wanted to steer a different path yeah. and build shit and, um, you know, enjoy my life. Make some money. Make some money along the way. Get paid for what you do. Yeah. 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 Seems fair. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a reasonable exchange in the way our world economy set up is that you bring some value and you get paid for some value. And um, right. yeah. And the the either the more value you bring or the more perceived value it is. Um, and I say that because you know there's plenty of things out there with just perceived value that make a truckload of money and they may have yeah. none. Um but yeah, I, I don't. Ha I don't have a TikTok account. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Even though my worry. wife wants me to have one, I don't. Have I it, was so. about to say, man, it's on your list. You just haven't read it yet. She's gonna get that. <laughs> 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 just so everybody knows what we're laughing about. Scott's wife is uh, a marketing guru, and um, with her being in marketing. Yeah, he's just, um, he's yet to read his full list. Well, he's read it, but he hasn't read it properly. She's, there's a date beside it that she's going to have you doing that by. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do, you know, do you know, it's an interesting thing, though, that as a little segue, um, there's the thing about going against the herd, and then there's the thing about going with the herd, and then being seen in the herd is probably those right. different things. And um, I know my kids, you know, they watch TikTok and I always have this thing where I go, if there's something like this like TikTok when it came out, uh, well, not when it came out, but when I first heard of it, I just go and download it. I, I make myself an account and I download it. And mainly mm -hmm. so that I can say to my 18 year old, oh, yeah, yeah, I've had that stuff for ages. You know, like that's just my little game. And she's like, no way. That's not cool that you've got it. Like, and uh, <laughs> so, so with that, I, um, I went, oh, God, how does this thing even work? And so I followed Will Smith and I, look, I haven't, I don't even think it's on my latest phone. Um, I don't know that it's downloaded to my latest phone, but I followed Will Smith and just um, when I first got on there and looked and, you know, all the rest, he had daily videos but just fascinating, like funny, clever, you know, humorous, just, um, and what an entertainment side it's become. You know, everybody's chasing it. Everybody, like, you know, when I say everybody, Facebook, Instagram, um, all these other platforms are chasing it uh, because it's yeah. just got its thing going on and it's just another form of entertainment. And, right. you know, it's YouTube's got all that plus more, I suppose, but it's, yeah, it's, it's fascinating how these different things rise to the top. So if you do follow the herd, 
how do you be seen in it is probably the the biggest question we should be asking your wife that not you (laughs) (laughs) that's a separate podcast yeah that's a whole yeah that's a whole nother podcast (laughs) um So t- let's go to, I, I was going to say another one um, that I don't know whether you know him very well in Austin, Texas, who's a musician, is um, Kevin Alter from Alter Studio. I don't know whether you know Kevin. Oh, no. Yeah. I, I didn't know he was a musician. I'm a huge admirer of his work. And, and he's yeah. He's a great yeah. Awesome guy. Kevin's just, you know, like, really lovely guy. And, um, yeah, but he's a musician and, uh, you know, like, they put the band back together and cut a single. It's I'm pretty sure there's a download of it on his podcast, um, which is one of the early ones in my track of podcasts. But I met Kevin, you know, in Austin years ago and just, uh, yeah, just so appreciate what a person he is. And then also, yeah, a huge admirer of their work. Beautiful yeah. work. Beautiful work. And just so beautifully executed. So yeah, but yeah, he's another another muso in the mix. Another muso in yeah, the mix. Yeah. Um, so, tell me about some of your projects. Tell me, tell me some stuff about what you love to create, and what you sort of think are some of the best things you've created. Um, that the it's ones that you've question. enjoyed the most to to create. Yeah, I mean, there's two journeys that I yeah. see. There's one is is that you might create an amazing thing that you love you will have a reason for it. But that could be completely different from how the public or how um, the they user um, sees it because that's a different story. But you, you will have your own reasons for what you love. You know, part, part of what, you know, I, I've been very fortunate um, to, to have worked with a lot of great people. And, um, but I think part of it too was kind of understanding what, I was good at and what I enjoyed in the process um, instead of trying to play that I can be everything, do everything good at all scales uh, myth. Um, what I, my first rule in business after I opened up was I don't have husbands and wives as clients. Oh, right. I refuse. Um, and the main reason is that I've seen too many of my peers, I, I myself in a previous office, um, had to act as someone's therapist and, and be a bad messenger <laughs> too much. And my life was too short for that. Um, and oftentimes there's big disconnects about money and money philosophies. Between couples. Beyond, yeah. Yeah. That exists beyond you. I mean, this is stuff that's entrenched in them from childhood. And there's yeah. nothing you can really do as a design professional to overcome that, which is why a lot of custom homes end in divorce. Uh, yeah. So I just decided I wasn't going to do any of that. Um, and, and I, most of my career, I had done commercial work, um, yeah. a lot of restaurants, a lot of food and beverage, and and strangely, uh, a lot of office buildings and uh, adaptive reuse projects and. Um, I, I was never as scared of the scrappy projects in offices where, you know, my, my peers would want the sexy thing that they knew how to slam out of the park or, you yeah. know, turn into something gorgeous. I was like, give me the, give me the problematic ones. Give me that dog. Let's, let's do something with that thing. And, you know, try to, try to, 
you know, really put architecture or good design into things that really needed it. And so I ended up um, getting a lot of my early commissions were from people who knew, who knew of me. And then after some of them had seen some of my early projects, it just started grew from there to where um, uh, word of mouth spread and, and then a couple national brands uh, asked me to partake in, in potentially doing a store for them. And that led to another thing and led to another thing. And, you know, what I realized is that um, I like working with people who understand themselves, like who they are as a business. And um, That's a it gives point. me, it, it gives me great joy because as a, as a professional, uh, you know, like I get to know them, but also I get to celebrate what makes them different, you know, and, and, and really what I try to do is give them one-off spaces that are, are a reflection of them, you know, almost like their culture or mm-hmm. um, their brand. And so the architecture can, can kind of be a, a billboard for them in a way, but also something to be proud of. Yeah, so it can carry the subtleties of who they are as a person as well as their own um, culture that they create, but without without that being, you know, like their only story. It's their brand story because it's separate from them as well, but it has all the little hooks and delicate pieces. And so, you know, a lot of the time I spend is about designing a story, uh, um, Around a, around a space or around a building um, and then trying not to fuck it up. You know, like really, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, like not getting too over-architecty about it or too fussy and, you know, precious about a materiality. Um, you know, you've got to pick your battles and then, and then have key things that even the client can kind of latch on to and, and be willing to pay for um, and that, that kind of becomes the project. That's, um, that's, yeah, that, that's a really beautiful approach. And as you said, it's about unwrapping the, the story, I suppose. And, and that's their story, but also the story of that brand. Um, the story of, you know, how, uh, that their, their culture, and their own understanding of themselves comes together. I think that's really, I think it's a really key kind of, um, a key sort of like element of how something is. There's something that when I I was um, researching you, I was on your website um, that I just loved, which was the red velvet events. I loved a lot of them, don't get me wrong, but the the red velvet events um, Mm -hmm. building, the old hut, Tell us a bit about that and that story because it's um, it's repurposing a unique structure. Um, and, and I'll just put a little thing in there before that. So Tom Kundig said to me, yeah, he says, if I can find something that's really ugly, uh, that's what I want to work on. <laughs> for the wow, same, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. he looks for ugly projects. Like if that's ugly and I can do something that makes that purposeful and beautiful and bring a depth to it and make it shine and um you know just with great design yeah that's the project that i I love to do a project like that he he seeks them out yeah that's amazing yeah i mean there's there's something about old buildings right whether it's 
you know, there's, there's all kinds of things. I mean, um, you know, whatever part of the world you're from, they're, they're slightly different. Um, uh, where, where we are in, in Austin, Texas, um, there's really not much history. Uh, there's the, there's a few waves of it, uh, from, you know, colonialization, the Spaniards, and then the... So you're not expecting a commission to update the Alamo at any point? (laughs) No, 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 uh, I, I don't... No, I'll leave that for Lake Plato or someone in San. Yeah, Antonio. really, exactly. Those uh, guys are gone. But, but uh, no, I mean that you know. So the first wave of buildings in Austin were German from the German immigrants mm-hmm. uh, who kind of helped found and grow the city. Um, and then after after the Civil War, that was kind of their era. Um, and then you know the next kind of big boom in Austin was uh, after the war, uh, World War II. And so there's a lot of 1950s buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of airfields during the uh, training fields during World War II. And Red Velvet Events was one of the warehouses uh, that was along a civilian airfield. And at that point, very North Austin, it's now considered central Austin as the city's grown. But yeah, right. um, the, the building was a relic of that old airfield most of it had been erased in time and turned into various strip malls and other purposes, but that one had remained. And what was interesting about it was uh, no one wanted to buy it. They were scared of it because it uh, was leaking. It had all kinds of dead cats and animals in it, um, which is always a deterrent. Yeah, a little, little deterrent. and I, I mean, there, and the whole building, um, you couldn't actually see the, the kind of structure. And for those who are listening, it's a, it's three vaults, or it almost looks like the profile of a cloud, as, yeah. some, as some people have said. Yeah, and, it's, it's like three three arches. Two of them touch the ground, and the middle one is just a blip of the top. Yeah, and, and you know. I didn't, I didn't see it at first until some of the ceiling tiles had fallen down and, uh, you know, I looked up and my client was with me and I said, you need to buy this thing right now, buy this building. And she's like, are you sure? I'm like, yes, we can, we can make this thing gorgeous. And the structure, uh, those structures were built during the war because they were uh, using the same technology of rolling iron as they were using airplanes. And so, um, that entire building has prefabricated arches, which were. I saw um, that. I saw that in the photographs. Yeah. They're they're on a four foot center. It's all modular, and it's incredibly lightweight to save on metal. But the entire building is screwed together. There is no welding. There are there's no oh, wow. hold downs. It is literally a twenty foot grid. And every piece piece of sheet metal that's screwed together or, or pliered in some cases. Yeah. Wow. So it's just super cool. I mean, nothing like that will get built again. Uh, no, no, it's of its time and, and things have moved since then. Yeah. Wow. And so we, we opted to save it. And I, uh, I had the fortune to work with a really brilliant structural engineer in town named, named Top Chu of, of Leap Structures and who I've, I've done projects with in the past. And, 
he did some uh, uh, analytical models to sort of look at, you know, how the, the structure was behaving and we couldn't do anything to it. It, it was, it was in really bad shape. The, the yeah. only thing we, only thing we could do is really put a new roof on it and figure out how to do that so that the building could last at least maybe another 50 plus years. And so yeah. we, we realized that kind of became the architecture, like, meaning like, let's put a new roof on it. Let's not build anything or try to hang things. Let's build everything underneath it and just let just, it be. Just let it be a roof. Just let it be. Yeah. Wow. And, wow. and my client, um, you know, I, we, we were looking at trains, European train stations at one point. Sure. Like, oh, it'd be so, so great to make a glass curtain wall. Um, that, that orientation is like north, northwest. So it's, it's not too bad as far mm-hmm. as heat gain goes. Um, and she was like, yeah, let's just do it. And, and she, she went for it. Uh, and I think, you know, what I'm realizing is that having good clients who can see the vision and trust you made that project. I mean, she, yeah. she gave me the keys to the car and said, go. Um, so, and that, that's a really key point as well, eh, is, is when you build the trust enough to be able to, um, they trust you, you trust what, what you can do with them. And all of a sudden you can bring things amazingly together. Um, and, uh, and it does, it's got that train station aesthetic, like if you were in London or, you know, some of the other European train stations, we have a glass curtain wall and the trains kind of poke out from the bottom of it. Um, and I, I imagine those train stations were built so voluminous because they had steam trains in them originally, right. you know, and they were trying to clear the air in there and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But it's a fan, it's a fantastic looking structure, and I mean, as you repurpose something old that would have otherwise just become scrap metal. I'm, I'm surprised it didn't already exist in the landfill. I mean, it's there's only a few of them left uh, in in the city uh, and then in in the region. Um, they're yeah, they're I, I have my eyes on a couple. I hope I hope maybe one day I'll buy one. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, with it though, it certainly gives a brand point as well, doesn't it? Like, so for her as a event center, it's, um, it's not like you've got to go down, you know, past here and round here and you'll see this building that's just a flat square front and it's got these doors. Instead you go, well, you keep driving along, you'll see us. Don't worry. We've got a curtain wall of glass and we're shaped like the top of a cloud. Um, that it's it, it worked. I mean, it markets itself. Um, you know, it, it it she's she loves it. And, yeah. Uh, 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 she's hosted parties and and other things before COVID, and uh, and then since COVID, her husband's company actually has moved into one of the bays of the building. So oh, cool. Um, yeah, it's cool. It, like it, we we set it up so the building was flexible to adapt. Yeah, because that's oftentimes buildings don't can't do that, and then they're just not worth anything. Um, so uh, it's cool to see how it's already being reused. Yeah, I mean, because of the fact that you don't, you, nothing's the roof supporting itself, um, and everything down inside it is just in modular pieces inside. Then all of a sudden, yeah, you've got this very highly flexible space if you want to change it around. 
That's a beautiful yeah. piece of work. Um, a good point that I want to come back to was you were saying about um, husband and wife clients and um, the journey of, you know, therapy, doing doing therapy for them, or which I think is um, if you're in the residential space, it's just a given that you're going to have to balance the understanding and the needs. And, you know, there, there can often be... Um, unless it's very well done, there can often almost be a winner and a loser in the design process. And keeping that balance is really important. But when you go, okay, well, I don't work with, you know, like that way, I just work in, in commercial as such, um, always is very clean like that. You, you work with an outcome, you work with a price, you work with getting it to something. And often I think gets missed is that a lot of people miss that, the architecture can be a statement of the brand and it doesn't have to be a loud statement, doesn't have to scream, but it is a statement of the brand. And then also that's a statement of the founder um, and their aesthetic. And weaving that into your story of, uh, of creating something is really fabulous. Thanks. I mean, the other two uh, commercial work it's, that I find more exciting is like... Um, you know, a lot of architects are paid a lot of money to design these beautiful custom homes. But, you know, like, like yourself, you, you've been on home tours, you know, you know and you maybe get to see that house once. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to live on the, on the left coast of, of, Cal, of, of the States and, yeah. you know, visit a lot of the case study houses in, in California or some of the beautiful uh, uh, mid-century modern homes up Adam, in Palm Springs Portland. and yeah in Portland yeah, and Palm yeah. Springs yeah Portland and Seattle and you know there there, there was this different sense of, of architecture um, mm -hmm. but about them um, but they're they're like these little jewels that you'll never get to go into unless you're there on the right day and someone happens to you know open the door for the mailman or you're that weird architecture stalker you know outside uh, yeah. you know and finally yeah, finally they let you in accidentally thinking you're know, you delivering on, something for god's sake come on in and don't come back yeah. take your shoes off yeah, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, but you, you see but, those uh, people lined up outside the Craftsman House and um, but you know, like if you do commercial projects, the cool thing is that you know they're public. I mean, there's that's good yeah. and bad sometimes, but they're open to people and and people experience them. Like part of one of the things I love so much is is for better, or for worse, reading like Yelp reviews, you know, yeah. or, or seeing how people uh, take photographs of themselves with like a texture of a wall that I've uh -huh. got behind them. They're or, selfies and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And even, you know, my, the previous office I worked at in Austin, great office, um, you know, they made little gift cards of each of the buildings we did for them. You know, like how cool is that? You know, yeah. that a brand is so... Uh, passionate about their buildings as a part of who they are and their experience that they make gift cards. Uh, That's cool. Little, this is cool. Um, and I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm very grateful to live in Austin um, and that people are willing to do things like that. You know, it's one of the few cities where 
there's a kind of youthful optimism still and that people are willing to do um, things that aren't like everything else. And they don't want to turn the whole world into a, a Walmart or strip center. Like people are uh, in interested in doing some cool stuff. You, you go back to that old and it's not a, it seems to have faded a little bit, but keep it weird you know, Austin's keep it weird thing. And Austin as a place certainly attracts um, people who have a high individualistic kind of outlook. And, um, you know, it, there is so many great things around the city. That's probably one of the reasons it's become such a haunt for me. I mean, I can get on a plane and well, I used to be able to get on a plane, but could go anywhere. Like I can choose anywhere I want to go. Um, but Austin is like a, it's like a tight little package of lots of different creative and quite, um, I want to say hands-on as a creative space. There's a lot of artisan kind of stuff that happens there. And that's, that's something else that's really nice. It, it's, you know, one of the, one of the other projects I, I worked on, um, and, and this is kind of, a, it's more of a cultural and, and kind of a timely statement, but you know, everyone wants to be in Austin. I mean, you, you want to come visit, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk is coming here, Joe Rogan's coming here. That's only because they know I go there, but yeah. Yeah, you, 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 you gave them. Remember? The word's uh, out, and so they're trying to see what I'm, I'm seeing there, yeah. But, but uh, you know, the thing about it is there, I've only lived here for 10 years. Um, my wife, who's from here, wanted to move back and, and, and really just have a good lifestyle and raise kids. Uh, it, and that's, it's worked for us. Um, but you know, the, the thing is, is there's, I've seen so many, uh, people come to Texas and be like, I'm from so-and-so I know what I'm doing. I'm from San Francisco or I'm from Chicago or from New York or I'm from wherever. And, and they and I'll come show with you this done. big, big, big boy, big town attitude. And, and then like in you know, a six months later, they're out of business. Um, yeah, or, and, and or they soften right down. There's that. Um, yeah. and, and, and so, but, but I mean, there's, there's a resourcefulness about Texans and, and you, you call it individual, individualistic, but um, there's a sense of that spirit of they, they had to figure it out and make use of what they had um, and deal with the weather, which is its own monster here. Um, uh, it, it's quite hot, uh, but and it can get really know, they, cold. They, yeah, and it can and get really, really humid. But, yeah, and it can get really humid. Yeah. So as like an architect, I you know I can't do the same things I do in Southern California. You know, you've got to yeah. have good windows and good overhangs and deal with water. And, yeah. Um, but I don't. We don't have earthquakes, uh, at least in this part of Texas. But yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the thing about Texans is that they still make stuff like, yeah, one of, one of the favorite things, one of my favorite things about Austin is most of the buildings uh, in downtown are, are made out of uh, the bed of the river or what we call Lady Bird Lake, which is in downtown Austin. Mm -hmm. um, there used to be a, a brick factory right there on the bay or on the shores that made all the buildings. Yeah. And that company that company still exists. I love it. 
And, and so it's just, there's, there's still some of that lineage of building culture, uh, which is cool to kind of honor sometimes in projects. Yeah, do you know a guy called Wells Mason? Do you know Wells? Anyway, I'll introduce you to him, but he's a sculptor and artist and stuff, but uh, doesn't live in Austin, but close. And um, he's on the podcast. He's a really neat guy. And again, this um, of your hands kind of attitude, you know, and, and there are other places in, in the US that have it as well, but there's this, just this really lovely um it's of your hands. It, it, it's it's artisan. It's got this artisan underlying factor that's really beautiful about a lot of a lot of parts of Texas actually, but Austin seems to have it just nicely worked out culturally. Um, and then also the the music, I think, drags a, another kind of person there. You know, the people that are there for the music um, just makes that place so special. It's yeah. So it's a fun town to be in. Um, let's let's talk about um, cycling because I know because you showed me around the uh, your your office there before that um, if you had ten employees that all have to ride a bike. Fact is, is that you've got <laughs> ten bikes and only yourself, um, or maybe more than ten bikes. Um, I know my wife would look in my in my garage and say, "Yeah, like um, you've got how many mistresses in there?" Because they're all surfboards for me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but tell us about uh, cycling and uh, your love of it, and tell me how that fits with the rest of your work. Um, it, it, for me, it's uh, it is kind of a vice, um, but it's also just a way to. Uh, deal with life. So when I was younger, um, one of my first jobs uh, at the age of like 14, um, I was a bicycle mechanic. Um, and I, I made a lot of money. Uh, and it, it, tra- it taught me this incredible skill of how to maintain things and repair things. But also, it taught me customer service, like how to, you know, ask people, you know, what their problems were. And how can I help them in learning how to treat everyone fair, you know, even when everyone's busy or angry or, you know, we were understaffed at certain points in summers. Um, And so, uh, but part of it was also being trained. Like, I think, you know, I I recognize that now later on from my previous employers and them training me, but I was trained by some really good bicycle mechanics who just taught you a discipline you know, yeah. went, went, you know, through something. A process. And exactly. And we're really patient enough to teach you, like, don't, don't do this too much or, you know, really, really showed me the ropes and, and then let me do it. Um, and so I've always been cycling, um, you know, even through college uh, in architecture school. Um, I was going to kill myself if I just went to school. Uh, it was such a, it, it, it was like a drug. Um, yeah. so I, I had to get a job and I worked as a bike mechanic part-time all through college and then finally left when I graduated and entered the profession. Um, and then tried to save money, uh, to, to buy bikes. But, um, but now, uh, 
Now I have 20. It is a problem. <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah. It's a, but, you're facing uh, up on here. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you know, part in, in the, I ride them every day. Uh, so I ride to work. Uh, yeah. Even even when it's 100 degrees here in Texas, I try to ride. I'm, yeah. I'm sweaty. Yeah. Um, but it's also kind of my litmus test for clients. If, if they can't handle me like that, then I don't know if I can get serious with them about the bad times during construction or <laughs> you know, those hard money costs. Yeah, um, right. Right. I mean, in a way, it sort of makes me less serious too, less less threatening um, than you know coming in on my brand new BMW or my yeah. black suit. You know, I'm like I'm sweaty and in my shorts. Let's talk. Let's get this. <laughs> let's get this shit done. I'm here. Okay. Yeah. Let's get the rubber on the road. Well, it, it actually is probably, um, you know, like there's probably a lovely story. It's like almost being the delivery guy, you know, you turn up on the bike and um, there's there's no ego in it. Well, there probably is. The bike could be worth more than most people's car. There, there might be something in the vice there. But um, well, there, there's another story there. But but yeah, I mean, that, that's it. Like I. Um, and also it helps deal with the stress, you know, the phone calls and the, yeah. the, you know, the construction conflicts or the drama. It's like, eh, I'll just ride my bike. Um, yeah. But the, the vice side of it is that um, the, the thing that I love about bikes is that they're, they are functional pieces of art. If, yeah. if you, if you can really see it that way. And, um, you know, this kind of comes back to when I was younger, but um, it, it takes a lot of time and energy for someone to build a bicycle. And um, while we don't see that when most of them come from factories and from yeah. other countries, you push know, the, like, way, the, the ones at yeah. Walmart are just push the wheels on and ride it out kind of thing. Yeah. You know, if someone's making you something, um, there's a lot of love in that, you know, mm. and precision and, and machining. Um, and care and design. And so I, I try to use my money wisely. And so I've invested in people who make these things. And, you know, at, at certain points, it's been like, just surprise me. Here's my body measurements. Why don't you make something beautiful for me? Yeah, and, I love that. Um, and it hasn't disappointed. Um, and, and to me, so they're almost like pieces of art in that way. But, um, I get to ride them and, and uh, enjoy them. Yeah, I've got the same sort of thing with surfboards. I don't have 20, but I probably have, I don't know, six or seven, but I have had collections way bigger. Um, there's probably only one off the shelf board that I own and the others are all either custom made for me or custom made for somebody else. And they've given me the board, you know, they've gone, Hey, I want you to, you know, try this board out and I'll go, oh, you yeah, know, tried it and I've enjoyed it. And they'll go, I want you to have it. Cause I don't surf it. I want you to keep it. And so those ones are still their boards as I, as I see them, but they're, you know, in my quiver of boards, but yeah, there's something about, you know, there's some measurements and somebody goes, well, you know, how do you want it to turn and whatever it is. And, um, you know, they'll look at your style of how you may surf or something and they go, yeah, okay, cool. We can make something that won't necessarily um, 
And we're not going to say we can improve how poor you are at the sport, but we can make it that it's more enjoyable for you. Right. So, it's, yeah, there's something cool about that. And, again, there's a lot of thought and um, expertise that goes into it. A lot like yeah. with architecture, you know, the, um, the, the thing that I often, you know, sort of come back to is, is with when you've got a builder who's doing something and um, they decide to make a change to something and you go, you've got no idea why, why, why we put it there. You've got no idea why that really existed in that space. So just don't change it without at least having the courtesy to talk to us because there's a, probably a dozen reasons that stacked into that decision. Um, and if it needs to change for some reason, especially with renovation work, um, talk to us because there's probably a dozen reasons why we wouldn't necessarily do it the way you just first saw. And maybe we would as well, but just, you know, keep that yeah. loop tight. And I love the fact with, you know, your work there where some of it's like you're, you're repurposing, renovating, you know, taking old and making it new and all that kind of stuff and finding a story for it. Um, and in doing that, you have to think on your feet as much as anything else. You can't, it's not just I'll draw it and make it. I had this conversation with Tom Kundig where we were talking about the fact that um, the architectural industry, <clears throat> sorry, the architectural training industry is on the grow. And part of the reason for that is, is because um, the gaming industry is a massive employer and virtual reality industry is a massive employer now um, of architects because of their way they're trained to think. And you were saying before about, you know, you have a beautiful home or something and you maybe, maybe at its wildest outside thing, you know, a million people might see it or visit it in its lifetime. And um, that, that, and now I'm going big there. I'm, I'm knocking it out of the park. But, you know, somebody who builds something in, you know, in a game, chances are a million or two people will be through it in the first week. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And it's a whole, you know, a movie where, where the thing's built. Um, and, you know, there could be, it could we get that on the opening weekend. It could have that numbers and all those numbers. And, and you kind of go, architecture has a whole nother life outside of just the built structures that we see. And the, the piece in between that is these commercial structures where people get to interact um, with a high, much higher volume person than a house would. Much, much higher volume. I mean, I, I've, had, I've had people drive into my buildings, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's its own design challenge that you probably don't ever have to think about, you know, like. Yeah. Maybe I should have put more bollards there. Yeah, maybe, maybe, or a bigger curb, take their wheels out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that's fascinating. Well, that's really cool. I've really enjoyed our chat, man. That's um, We could keep talking, no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, I think there's some really cool things there. So I do have one last question, which is um, if, and I asked this question of a few people, um, if you had one last project, that's it, it's all done, can't do another one, pencils down at the end of this project, what would you choose? Uh, great question. Um, 
I, you know, I, I think uh, I would say this is going to be a strange one. You know, most people are like, oh, I want to design a museum or uh, uh, yeah. an embassy or something monumental. Um, you know, I think I would rather design a badass Montessori or daycare or elementary school. Um, because I think the culture of, of design in those spaces that are so formative right now, and, um, they're awful. I think, I think the statement I'm going to say about uh, designers who do those things, or maybe it's the, the system that's funding them, yeah. is uh, they're not places to inspire kids. They're, they're not promoting well-being. They are, they're kind of like penitentiaries. And yeah. I think that we all could do ourselves a favor and offer kids a different story and, and really make kids have a better life. Change, change the foundation of where they come from. That's a beautiful yeah. answer. It's a really great answer. I love it. Um, when, when I'm sure at some point you'll come to Australia, um, when you come here, I will take you to the Montessori school my kids go to and it has a building in the middle that they call the roundhouse. And when you, cool. when you look at the, they've got three campuses on the one farm. So first of all, because they don't mix the age groups in those campuses. They do, but only for events. Otherwise there's different stages of progress in their kids' lives that they need to move from one to another. They need to transition. Um, they're still a community, but they transition to a more mature community and they transition to another more mature community. But the early years is what they call a roundhouse. And uh, a guy called Philip Daffra here designed it, an architect, and did a fabulous job on it. And I never really understood until I sat with him and asked him about it. But it's, um, it's like a round circle and it's got a hole in the middle. And okay. the, the sun comes, it's two stories high, and the sun comes in through the middle of this big hole. And it's got two levels that all look down into the hole. And it's only got very small windows looking outside to mm -hmm. the outside world. And there's a whole philosophy behind it as that at this age, they're looking into this protective wall from a protective wall and looking at their community. And it's tight and it's close and it's got play areas and it's got... Um, you know, undercover ones, exposed ones. Um, and it's become an event space in the middle of it as well. Um, mm -hmm. It's, it's biophilic in design. It's got all these green plants that hang down, almost creating an internal curtain wall that they look out through as well. Um, and that is part of the development age of them as human beings at this age is this, this inward looking thing and how they develop themselves as a human before they actually start to go looking outward at the rest of the world. Um, right. Yeah. And as I say, but take you there for sure. It's a, it's a really cool space. And it was, as I said, I didn't understand it when I first saw it either. I was like, mm, why, why the hell would you do that? Um, <laughs> but then, yeah, it's part of the Montessori philosophy. Right. Well, we're going to have to catch up for at least one beer, and I'm not riding a bike when we're uh, when I'm in Austin next. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I could loan you one. No, no, it's all good, man. <laughs> I, I I used to ride bikes a fair bit when I was younger, but um, since then I've uh, busted a few knees and stuff like that, so I don't ride anymore. It's um, it's one of those things. Sounds- yeah. Well, you'll have to show me your surfboard collection. Oh yeah, so. yeah absolutely. We'll stick you on the water and see how you go with sharks and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's all I'm, I'm a land lover. I'm a <laughs> land lover. There you go. If I do one lap on a bike, you're going to have to do one lap in the bay. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. So Scott, thanks so much, man. We'll post all your socials and stuff like that so people can get in touch with you. Um, we're going to post some pictures of some of your stuff as well. Um, and we'll probably be up in about a month or so, uh, okay. the podcast, but we'll be in touch. And when we come to Austin, when I get there next, which hopefully will be next year, um, for sure, I'm going to do a bit of a reunion of, uh, try and get all the people who are on the podcast from, uh, Austin, because there's a few of you all in one space at, at, a, at a time. That would be kind of fun as well. Maybe we'll go to red events. That would be cool. Sounds good. That sounds yeah. great. Awesome, yeah. man. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you. This is really great. Thank you so much. Awesome, buddy. Talk soon. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, if it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot ch- chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of them, someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, Why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.